So before we turn our attention to the pages of Exodus this evening, we like to begin each semester of study by laying some foundational principles that establish how we approach the Word of God. These principles serve as a framework that help us study the Bible well. Each of us as individuals bear responsibility for what we do with the contents of this book, with how we respond to it. So we want to do everything we can to provide you with the tools so that we can approach the word that God has given us in the correct way. And these principles, which you can find on page eight of your study guide, are going to help us do just that. So the very first principle is probably the thing that I wish I had most understood better when I first began studying the Bible on my own, seriously, many years ago. And that is that the Bible is a book about God. I know that that seems very, very obvious, but I can absolutely promise you that that is something that we often skip over completely, and if we don't skip over it completely, then sometimes we just absolutely underemphasize the point. But the point of the entire Bible is God himself, and the purpose of the Bible is to prepare us for and to point us to him, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God is the point of the Bible. So as those who study the Bible, one of the things that we're going to have to do is be very intentional in keeping the point of the Bible at the center of our study. Every book, every story, every character, every event, every word, every, everything in this book has something to say to us about who God is and what he is like. And so as students of the Bible, we read intently, looking first and foremost for those things. What does this tell me about God? So principle number two is a necessary corollary of principle number one. If the Bible is a book about God, then that must mean that the Bible is not a book about you or me. The Bible is not a book about us, so that means that we have got to stop studying it and reading it as if it is a book about you and me. That means that the first thing that we look for when we enter into our study of God's word should not be answers to the following questions. How is this going to help me? How is this going to improve my finances? How is this going to improve my relationships? How is this going to improve my self-esteem? Because when we do that, who are we making the Bible a book about? We're making it a book about us. And it's not a book about us. It's a book about God. Now, I'm not saying that those are bad questions to ask. Please don't hear me saying that you can't come to the Bible hoping to gain some of that information. You will. The Bible has so much to say to us about all of those things. But my point is that we do not go to the Bible hoping primarily to find out those things. We come to the Bible intently searching for God in it. And then all of those other things follows surely. The third principle is that the Bible tells one big story. The Bible tells the most amazing story of all time. And the point of the entire Bible is to tell this one story. The theme of that one story is unmistakable, and there is one consistent message 
from God to man. And my absolute favorite synopsis of that story comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible. So let me read to you how this storybook Bible encapsulates the story of the Bible. It says, the Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story how God loves his people and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this one story. You see, that is the story that the book of Exodus is embedded. And so when we understand that big picture story of the Bible, then it's going to help us correctly understand the smaller portions of the Bible within the big story. So one of the things that I hope you will notice about this study is that we're going to pretty consistently pull your attention back to look at that big story of the Bible. The fourth principle is that the Bible is about real people and a living God who actually speaks to us right now. You know, one of the things that I have noticed is that when we study the Bible, we often kind of tend to distance ourselves from the people and the places and the events in the Bible. We tend to kind of focus in on how the people are so different from us. And, and the places are so foreign and they're just so far away from us and how the events are so completely irrelevant from the things that are going on and how we live our life right now. But the people and the places and the events of the Bible are absolutely relevant to our lives right now. And our job as those who study the Bible are trying to figure out how. So really what we want to do the best we can is to step inside these stories as we are reading them instead of distancing ourselves from these stories as we read them. We want to try to walk alongside of these characters. We want to try to learn about the nature and God as they do. And when we do that, it becomes so much easier to hear the present tense reality of God's word speaking to us now through the words of these stories that we're going to be reading this semester. Principle number five is that the Bible is a supernatural book. So although written by human hands, the words of the Bible are divinely inspired. So ultimately, we attribute authorship to God himself. And because of this, we approach the living word that God has given us with great care. We are careful to come humbly to this book, and we come to it placing ourselves willingly in submission under the words of this book instead of lording ourselves in authority over the words of this book. So we realize because this is a supernatural book that we approach it prayerfully, that we need the Spirit of God to help us to understand the book. So we use the minds that the Lord has given us to read the book and to study the book and to wrestle with it and to ask questions of it. And then we wholeheartedly trust that the Spirit of God will lead us into an understanding and into acceptance of the words of this book. Principle number six is that context is crucial. 
the single most important rule for studying the Bible correctly is that context determines everything. To understand the Bible correctly, you have to have a correct understanding of the context of whatever portion of the Bible that you are reading or trying to understand at that time. The Bible was written by individual people to individual people or to a specific group of people for a specific purpose within a very specific cultural um, and temporal time frame. All of those things determine what the words mean. So when we read it, we can't understand it without knowing who wrote it, when they wrote it, why they wrote it, who it was written to, what type of literature it was written as, and so on and so forth. One of the best tips that I ever received as a Bible study student was that we have to understand what it meant to them then before we can make sense of what it means for us now. Them then and then us now. Finally, principle number seven is that commitment is key. Coming to know God through the study of his word is something that I have noticed does not happen by accident. It takes time, it takes intentionality, and you are always going to have to give up something else to make it happen. So we ask of you at the beginning of this nine-week study together that you make the commitment to do the work, that you consider what is it that I am going to give up to make time for the study of God's word during this season of my life, and that you show up and that you discuss and that you see this thing through. And we ask this of you because we are a group of women who know very well the power that the word of God has to change a woman's heart to change her mind, to change her life, and we have seen the way that that impacts her marriage, her family, her church. And that is something that we deeply desire for every one of you in here. So in keeping with my own principles for a better Bible study, I guess the next thing that we should do is turn our attention to the context of the book of Exodus. Doing this is going to correctly orient us to how this particular book of the Bible fits into that greater story that the Bible is telling. Because as you will see soon, the story of Exodus begins a long time before the book of Exodus begins. If you were with us for last year's studies, then you got to journey with us through the pages of Genesis. And Exodus is simply a continuation of the Genesis story. So as we spoke of just a few minutes ago, the entire Bible tells a single story. And this story begins in the book of Genesis with the triune God of the universe who in an overflow of his perfect love created the world and everything in it. And then as the crown of his creation, he made us, humans, to be his children and to rule over his world on his behalf. But in Genesis chapter 3, when we were given the choice to choose between ourselves and God, we chose ourselves. And that choice created a fracture in the relationship between God and humankind. And that fracture instantaneously broke everything in the world. We broke fellowship with God, and the effects of that brokenness rippled all throughout God's once good creation. 
And yet God still ruled and God still reigned over all and he refused to give up on his people. Even in the face of our rebellion, he promised that he would one day send the one who would make right what we had done wrong and who would find a way to restore us to relationship to him once again. However, the effects of our brokenness had create division and it had create hurt and it had create pain. It, it had turned us against God. It had turned husband against wife. It had turned brother against brother. And, and the, this pain crescendoed in Genesis chapter 6 to such an extent that this is what we read. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord sent a great flood upon the earth, but the grace of God given through one man, Noah, saved us all from the just and holy wrath of God. And then generations later, through the line of one of Noah's sons, came a man named Abraham. And Abraham was a pagan man living in a pagan land, but upon hearing the call of God to follow him out of that land, Abraham obeyed. And with the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, we see God move to correct the broken bent that the history of mankind had taken. And he does this through making Abraham a promise. Actually, it it was a series of promises, and God promised Abraham, who was the 75-year-old childless man at the time, that he would be the father of nations, that he would have more descendants than there even were stars in the sky, and that he would be the father of an entire people, and that he would give this people a place, he would give them a land that they could call their own, and that he would protect this people, and he would provide for this people, and that he would be present with this people. And then on top of all of those promises, as if that was not enough, God had tacked on this mysterious promise to the end of those promises when he said, Abraham, through you, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, Abraham could not have known at the time how important that promise was, but because you and I have this in our hands, we have the ability to do something that Abraham cannot. We have the ability with this to kind of step back and look at the full story of Scripture, and because we can do that, we can see that that promise that God made to Abraham was the beginning of something big. That promise was an indication that one day the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come through the line of Abraham. And that promise was so significant that that exact moment in Scripture, the entire focus of Scripture kind of shifts and it turns and it focuses in on this one man and his family and his descendants because this was the line through whom Christ would one day come. And these were the Israelites, the people God raised up through Abraham and his wife Sarah, whose son was Isaac, whose son was Jacob, who God renamed Israel. 
And the Israelites were a people created for and marked by their Lord God creator. And these people would display the glory of God through their love for him and through their obedience to him. Now, we spent an entire two semesters of Bible study last year looking very closely at the beginning of God's covenant people. We saw that God had placed them in the land of Canaan and that he had promised that he was one day going to give this land to them. But then at the end of Genesis, something absolutely unexpected happens and a terrible famine hits this land. But even in the midst of this famine, we see God is faithful to his people. He provides for them this time through a man named Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, the son of Israel, who years earlier had been carried off into Egypt as a slave because of the betrayal of his brothers. But in his sovereignty, God had protected Joseph during his time in Egypt, and he even raised him up to a position of great power and great prestige among the Egyptians. You see, what the brothers had intended for harm, God had intended for good. And at just the right time, at the moment of the Israelites' greatest need, Joseph was able to bring his family in under the abundant provision of the Egyptians. Years passed, and the first book of the Bible, which began in a garden in Eden, ends with a grave in Egypt. It's really a fitting reminder of everything that had happened in the first book of the Bible, a story that had begun so perfectly With the creation of life, it ends with the death of a man who had become a savior to the Israelites. Am I safe in assuming that most of you in here are familiar with the film The Princess Bride? The entire premise of the film is that of a grandfather telling his grandson a story, reading a story to his grandson one day when the grandson is home sick from school. And there's a point in the telling of this story when the grandson thinks that the story has to be over because things have turned so horribly wrong. Um, So he interrupts the grandpa from reading it because he thinks, the grandson thinks, that the evil Prince Humperdinck has triumphed, that the hero Wesley is dead, and that poor Princess Buttercup will never be rescued. So he says, whoa, 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 wait, grandpa, what do you mean that Wesley is dead? I mean, you don't mean dead, dead, do you? I mean, who gets Humperdinck? Jeez, grandpa, why did you even read me this story? He's so frustrated by the turn of events that the boy is tempted to give up on the story altogether. And at this kind of iconic point in the film, the grandpa peers at his grandson from over the top of the book and he says, you want me to read this or not? And that's the same sense that we get when we close the book of Genesis. What do you mean that Joseph is dead and that the Israelites are in Egypt? What about all of those promises that the Lord made to Abraham? What about all of the descendants he was supposed to have? And what about the land? You want me to finish reading this or not? 
You see, the discerning reader would see that embedded in the last few verses of Genesis are a couple of clues that in order to get the real ending of the story, we have to keep reading after Genesis is over. Genesis 50, 24, Joseph, picking up in Joseph's story, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. See, Joseph understood that the story would not end with a grave in Egypt. Although Joseph did indeed die, as did all of his brothers and all of that generation who knew that story. Yet this growing family, the Israelite people, would remain in Egypt until their exodus, which is the portion of the story that we get to study together this semester. The title of this book comes from a Greek word, which means exit or departure. And my favorite translation of that word was the way out. As surely the story of Exodus is the story of God showing his people the way out of their slavery. This book was written by the same author as the book of Genesis, Moses. In fact, in Hebrew, the opening word of this book is the word and. So it very clearly signals to us that the Exodus story is a continuation of the Genesis story. In fact, if you were to keep reading the books of the Bible after Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, you would see that those next two books of the Bible start with that exact same Hebrew word, and. And because all of those books written by Moses, and this is the same Moses, by the way, that you're going to meet when you start reading this week. He shows up in Exodus chapter 2, and he wrote the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, which sounds really fancy, but it's just a fancy way of saying book of five. It's Exodus, Leviticus, Exodus, what, no, Genesis. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Am I right? Okay. Um, All of those books are written by Moses, um, and they all continue the telling of a single story. So it's very important that we keep in mind that when we read them, the books are really meant to be taken together. Moses wrote these books during the 40-year period that he and the Israelites spent living in the wilderness, and that is a part of the story that we are actually going to get to look at next semester. And just as all of these books share a common author, they also share a common audience. And understanding who the original audience for these books were was going to be really helpful in us understanding what the book means as we get into it and we're trying to understand it. Understanding who that original audience was is also going to go a long way to helping us understand how we can apply it to our own lives today. 
Exodus was written to the generation of Israelites who were with him in the wilderness. He wrote it for the purpose of preparing them to enter into the promised land. He wrote it to remind them of who they were, what their origins had been, and what the requirements were of them with the covenant that God had made. So we're going to see that this book chronicles the Israelites' departure from Egypt, where they were enslaved, as they head toward the promised land. And that journey, really luckily for us, breaks down pretty nicely into two parts. The first part we're going to study this fall, and the next part we are going to study in the spring. In part one, we're going to see God move to rescue the Israelites from their physical bondage. In part two, we're going to see God move to rescue the Israelites from their spiritual bondage. In part one, we're going to see the Israelites struggle under this oppressive service to Pharaoh. And then in part two, we're going to see God graciously lead the Israelites to thrive under a holy service to him. So this entire portion of the Bible that we're going to be studying this semester is a type of literature known as historical narrative. Now, there's a a smidge of poetry thrown in at the end, but we'll get to that when we get there. But since we're going to be spending such a large amount of time in historical narrative, I just wanted to take a minute and make sure that we understood what it meant to be reading historical narrative. What do we need to know to read and study that type of literature right? Well, the first thing we need to keep in mind is that it is history. It is a record of events that happened in the past. And the next thing we need to keep in mind is that in in addition to being a record of events, it is also the telling of a story. It is a story that was purposefully, purposefully told and retold not only to record events in the past, but also to give meaning and direction to a people in the present. Moses wrote the book of Exodus to provide that meaning and direction to the Israelites in the wilderness, and the Spirit of God has preserved it so that it might provide that meaning and direction to those of us who follow him today. And that is why the book of Exodus, although it is buried deep within the pages of the Old Testament, should not only be seen as a tell from the distant past, although it certainly is, but also as an eternally important and relevant book for our lives. So what exactly is it that the book of Exodus has to say to us today? Like, why would we choose to study another book from the Old Testament after we have already spent an entire year of our Bible study time together going through the story of Genesis? Why Exodus? Well, we have several pretty good reasons. First of all, we fully believe that the more familiar you are with the entire story of Scripture— the better you are going to be able to understand each individual book of the Bible. Um, So if you are trying to understand the entire story, um, or if you are trying to understand each book of the Bible without first understanding that big story of Scripture, it's kind of like trying to put the pieces of this puzzle together without the benefit of having the picture on the box. This tells us how all of these are meant to fit together in the first place. 
So toward that end, when we finished up with the book of Genesis, we thought something about this feels a little different, and maybe we should just keep going on to try to shore up our understanding of that entire story of Scripture. So we study Exodus to better understand the story of Scripture. Second, through Exodus, we come to know more fully the living God. In the book of Exodus, we are going to learn more about who he is, what he is like, and the things that he does. In the book of Exodus, we're going to see that the Lord broadcast his name in a way that is completely unique to this particular book of the Bible. In Exodus, God reveals himself as the personal God of presence who dwells with this people. He reveals himself as protector, provider, deliverer, guide, lawgiver, as the supreme object of worship, as utterly holy, as self-sufficient, and as sufficient to save. And the God of Exodus is the very same God that you and I serve and worship today. So as we come to know more about who God is and what God is like and what he does, we're also going to learn through the story of Exodus what that means for us, how we are to relate to him and how we are to respond to him. How are we supposed to live in covenant with him? The Exodus story is our story. Third, Exodus is the first book of the Bible that explicitly introduces us to one of the most significant themes in all of Scripture, and that is redemption. Redemption means to free someone from bondage, and it always involves payment of a price in order to secure that release. I am the third child in a family of four children, and my two older brothers made it a part of their life work to torment and torture my little sister and I constantly when we were growing up. So my oldest brother, Jason, um, he found it particularly amusing how overprotective and kind of insanely obsessed I was with the little dogs that we had when I was growing up. And one of the little dogs was a Shih Tzu named Boozer, and he was particularly susceptible to Jason's schemes because Boozer was the stupidest dog that you could ever imagine. Very stupid, but he was cute. So one day, um, I had gone all over the house and the yard looking for this little dog, and he was nowhere to be found. And I remember growing suspicious um, when I passed through the kitchen, and Jason and his friend were sitting there, and his friend was laughing, and Jason said, you're getting colder, you're getting colder. And so I knew that Jason had done something with my dog and that I was going to have to pay a price to get him back. So it turns out that Jason had hidden Boozer in the freezer where he sat patiently awaiting. He was so stupid. I opened the freezer door, and he was just like, like just, like nothing had ever happened. He sat patiently awaiting deliverance while I worked out the price of his ransom. You see, the one needing deliverance is never able to redeem themselves. The Israelites could not have freed themselves from bondage any more than poor little Boozer could have just pawed his way out of the freezer. In Exodus, we meet a God who recognizes 
the captivity of his people, who hears their cry for help, and then who makes a way for them out. This theme of redemption that is established in Exodus is going to help us make sense of the rest of the biblical narrative. One pastor wrote this, God's entire plan of salvation is Exodus-shaped. He went on to say that, in fact, the whole story of Scripture is Exodus-shaped. So as we study that theme of redemption really closely in the book of Exodus, it's going to go a long way to help us understand how that theme threads through the whole of Scripture. And what I found particularly thrilling as I studied through this material on my own is that it did a lot to help me understand my own story as well. The Exodus story is our story. Fourth, Exodus is going to tell us a great deal about how we are to walk out our lives on a daily basis, how we are going to walk out our faith on a daily basis. Exodus is going to instruct us regarding worship, thanksgiving, community, holiness, obedience, and idolatry. Exodus is going to show us how to rely daily on his presence and how to grow in our trust of the Lord to meet everything that we could ever possibly need. Additionally, Exodus is going to instruct us on matters of ethics and morality that are vitally important to the heart of God. We're going to see a God who cares not just about the spiritually enslaved, but about the physically enslaved as well. In Exodus, we're going to see a God who who meets people at the level of their actual physical needs. We're going to see him fight against injustice, and as he does so, we're going to gain so much insight into the mission of God, not only on an eternal level, but also the mission of God on a temporal level as well. We're going to see a God who fights against Um, racism, against murder, against slavery, a God who clearly cares for the unborn, and a God who instructs his people to do the same. The Exodus story is our story. And finally, within the story of Exodus, God has painted for us a picture of the gospel. As I have said many times in today's lesson, the entire Bible tells a single story. And within this story, God uses a series of smaller stories to tell that big story over and over again. I majored in communication studies as a college student, and I went on to teach those courses after I graduated. And one of the courses that was on my roster semester after semester was public speaking. You just can't get away from it. And one of the very first things that you learn as a public speaking student is that repetition is key. If you have something that you want your audience to remember, you want to say it over and over and over again and in as many different ways as you can possibly imagine to help the point stick. I often told my public speaking students something that my coach had told me, and that is that there are three parts of every speech. You're going to tell them what you're going to tell them, you're going to tell them, and then you're going to tell them that you told them. Well, God is well aware of the human tendency to forget his main points. 
So he tells and he retells us often and in many different ways to help the point stick. In one way or another, all of the smaller stories in the Bible are telling us the big story of the Bible. Many times and in many ways in this book, the Lord is going to tell us what he's going to tell us, and then he's going to tell us, and then he's going to tell us that he told us. So the book of Exodus as a whole and the events within the book of Exodus are a part of that telling and that retelling. So I'm going to point you to a specific instance of this that we find in the Gospels when we read a story about Jesus. This is from Luke chapter 9, verse 28. About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So that departure refers to Jesus's death, which he would soon suffer. And as are all departures, Jesus's departure was preceded by a journey. And it was a difficult journey. It was comprised of suffering, of fierce opposition, of captivity, of bloodshed, of sacrifice, and finally death. Interestingly enough, the Greek word for departure in verse 31 is exodus. And Jesus' departure, his exodus, would provide for all of those who choose to follow him a way out. So maybe you've come to a point in your story when you're tempted to give up on the telling of the story before the story is over. Perhaps you've reached a point where things have taken such a terrible turn that it seems that the hero Wesley is dead, that the evil Prince Humperdinck has triumphed, and that poor Buttercup will never be saved. Well, in Exodus, we meet a God who still leads his people to freedom, who unchains them from the bonds of every type of captivity that you can imagine. So should I finish reading or not? The Exodus story is our story. So let's keep reading this semester. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are the very same God that we're going to read about this week in the pages of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who sees the captivity of his people, who hears their cries for help, and who moves to make for them a way out. God, I thank you for this time of study, Lord. I thank you for the women who are joining us, Lord. As we continue on, God, as we study, as we ponder these things, as we read your word, as we ask questions, Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would lead us into an acceptance of the things that you have said in your word. 
and that all of it would lead us to love you and glorify you. And we pray these things in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.